Hey, everybody. Welcome to Trashy Divorces. I'm Alicia. Welcome back, friends. My name is Stacy. We're looking at Trashy Divorces from both sides now this week. <laughs> Stacy, you were telling us a... Mine goes back in time a little bit. I have the uh, long-suffering daughter of just luminary W.E.B. Du Bois. His daughter Yolanda was sort of pressed into an unsuitable marriage, and we have the tale. And really just, it's a dad story. Who do you have? You have a more contemporary one. Uh, this week I'm covering the often requested trashy divorce of two of the darlings of the mm-hmm. British theater. Mm-hmm. Emma Thompson, Kenneth Branagh. Mm-hmm. She's a pedal. He's a fine actor. Yep. We'll find out what happens. <laughs> Before we begin our episode. Let's visit the magic mirror, shall we? Let's give a shout out to our new folks who joined us over at patreon.com slash trashy divorces this week. Big thanks and love to Veronica L, Jamie B, Carrie C, and Millie S. And Kara F, our new super supporter. We hope to see you at our Sunday salon happening this Sunday. Only one of the benefits that happen on a variety of levels Mm -hmm. over on Patreon. And with that, what should we do now, Alicia? We gotta go, go, go. So, Stacey, we're going to time hop back a little for your trashy tale today. Yeah, I have a wedding of the century uh, of the Harlem Renaissance, but mostly I have the story of the long-suffering daughter of luminary intellectual giant W.E.B. Du Bois. Yolanda Du Bois is his daughter, and dad was big on press coverage for stuff that she did, and it really kind of misshaped her life. So we're going to talk about that, the Harlem Renaissance's wedding of the century, but we have to start with dad first. So W.E.B. Du Bois, Will is what we'll call him because that is what his wife called him, was born February 23rd, 1869 in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. Okay. He would become one of the architects of the racial equality movement in America and around the world in the 20th century. He was a scholar and author. He co-founded the NAACP. He edited its monthly magazine, The Crisis. For all of his accomplishments, and they are many, what Will was not especially suited for was family life, as we will see. Oh, no. So Great Barrington, in his childhood, was a, it was a very well-integrated community. Unfortunately, his early family situation left some things to be desired. His dad abandoned the family when Will was two. And when he was 12 or 13, his mother had a stroke. She died in 1885. Oh, no. So that's all very tough stuff. And however tragic his youth, there was the good fortune of growing up in Great Barrington. The public school system was racially integrated, and Will had super supportive teachers who recognized his towering intellect from an early age and encouraged him toward intellectual pursuits. Which is fantastic. It is fantastic. And... Having survived kind of being different, he was a kid without a dad. Then he was a kid without a mom. He was black in a white town. He began to build his identity around, you know, as young people will do, the mission of changing the world. He would devote himself to the empowerment of black Americans and wage a lifelong public mission to obtain the equality that America's founding doctrines promised. These are fantastic goals. Small goals. Small 
I mean, no, they're huge. It's huge. A huge cult. Um, he's a legendary in his work. Oh, for yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, globally, yes. He graduated high school, uh, and his church raised funds to pay for his tuition at Fisk University. Oh, that's nice. And HBCU in Nashville. And so talk about culture shock. This was the first decade post-Reconstruction in the South. And this guy from Massachusetts shows up like it must have been quite the contrast. Uh, After Fisk, Will goes to Harvard. Huzzah! Did not accept credits from Fisk, so they worked something (sighs) out. Yeah. No. And in 1890, Will earned his second bachelor's degree. Then Harvard gave him a scholarship to stick around and attend grad school there, studying sociology. He was a pioneering sociologist. Like, he invented many of the methods that are the, the field relies on today. In 1892, he earned a fellowship to attend the University of Berlin, which gave him an outsider's eye view of America and American racism. And he would write later that In Berlin, he wasn't regarded as a curiosity or something subhuman. He was just a man engaged in the work of his studies, and his compatriots were generally glad for his company. So, slightly different. In 1895, W.E.B. Du Bois became the first African-American to earn a Ph.D. from Harvard. Wow. Mm -hmm. He was a rising star in the academy. He taught for a couple of years at a university in Ohio, which is where he met and married his wife of the next five-plus decades, Nina, in 1896. She was a gorgeous, if somewhat unsophisticated, young woman. She was maybe a couple years younger than him. I think her date of birth is not certain, records being what they were uh, back in the day. She was from Cedar Rapids, Iowa. She was a student. That's how they, he was a teacher that, at college. That's how they met. They married May 12th, 1896 in Cedar Rapids, attended by her family since his was not alive anymore, Uh, then took the train back to Ohio the following day, just in and out real quick. Like, did he take his wife or did? Okay. Phew. Yeah. So from there, they spent a year at UPenn doing, he was doing sociological field work in Philadelphia's black neighborhoods. That year, uh, Nina became pregnant and would give birth to Burghardt Du Bois on October 2nd, 1897. Hooray! This marriage was really only happy for about two years. Oh, no. We are in the happy part. Oh, good. Well, okay. Well, Mm -hmm. let's enjoy it while we're here. From there, the little trio were off to Atlanta University, now Clark Atlanta University, where he taught from 1897 until 1910. It was, unfortunately, a period marked by intense tragedy, particularly when Burkhart contracted diphtheria oh, no. and was refused treatment by <gasps> Atlanta's white medical establishment, which did not see the death of a two-year-old black child as particularly problematic. It's problematic. It's problematic. Years later, Will would point back to this event as the place where Nina's life and worldview irreversibly shifted. Shocker. Yeah, um, that's... Terrible. Yeah, so they were married for the rest of her life until 1950, but the relationship just became increasingly loveless over time. There was a bond that they shared, and I think they, a common vision that they shared, but Will was kind of an aloof guy. He, I think, was fairly self-absorbed in his conception of himself as as a public intellectual, which he was. I mean, but he he looked down on his wife and later on his daughter. It, it was, it's, it's weird. The family dynamics here are weird. Anyway, this is where we welcome to our story, Yolanda Du Bois. 
She was born October 21st, 1900, again in Great Barrington. He, he goes this home. guy again. gets around a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, during a year when Will had mostly been in Paris for work, the new baby gave the couple an opportunity to reconnect. But Will found himself annoyed by some of the ways that Nina was, to his mind, strange with the baby. Notably, she was insistent on cleanliness around Yolanda. And particularly, she was obsessed with washing the soles of any shoes Yolanda wore. Just very, very, things had to be very clean around the baby, which makes perfect sense given that she had just lost a baby to illness. But to Will, this was just like an indication that Nina had become hopelessly weird. He really did not respect the women in his life. The family would return to Atlanta for his teaching job, but Yolanda's childhood was as marked by her father's absence as it was by his presence. He traveled all the time for conferences, research, and other projects. And of course, at the time, travel took, right, you don't hop a plane. Sure, um, it was a significantly longer. You were longer. sailing to mm-hmm. Europe and stuff. He wasn't just an academic leading light. He was also spearheading movements for racial equality all over the world. So yeah, lots of travel time. Du Bois biographers speculate about Yolanda's frequent illnesses, with some suggesting that she was, in effect, faking it for attention, but the truth is likely a little more complicated. Her mother had always been a little sickly herself, and it seems reasonable to think that with the loss of Burkhart, she may have been very tuned in to her daughter's day-to-day. Everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Plus, it was just an era where medicine was very much like, I'm just going to say words now. So one time Yolanda was diagnosed with um, inadequate levels of Lyme. Oh. I don't know what that means. Just a very etch-a-sketch kind of field medicine was back then. Anyway, in 1910, Will and the family moved to New York City, where he began editing The Crisis, the NAACP's magazine. Meanwhile, aside from her health concerns, young Yolanda was also just a challenging child for her parents to raise. She responded to her father's absences with defiance when he was there, which, you know, for someone as as just proud as Will must have been a very bitter pill. Moreover, he had had this vision for both of his children that they would emerge into the world as extensions of like his own reach They would be powerful and proud and black and competent and capable enough to rise to the occasion of the world they were inheriting. Good goals. It was grandiose, and I do not think Yolanda bought what her aloof absentee (laughs) dad was selling. I'm sure the pressure was heightened even more by the fact of her being his sole living child. Right. Yeah, she also likely understood his more private opinions about her. She was heavier than he believed was ideal and he would criticize her for nibbling and tasting all day dads (laughs) and as dads so often do he believed she was unfocused lacked self-discipline and would probably benefit from a rigorous team sport or something oh my god thanks dad (laughs) it's just so terrible this is so dad this is such a dad thing even worse for poor intellectual charismatic will His daughter, whose language had once echoed the refinement of his own voice, had started, in his mind, to sound merely, and I quote, American. (laughs) It was too much for him. So when Yolanda was 13, he enrolled her in an English country boarding school. Oh, God, how did that go? The year was 1914, and World War I had just broken out weeks, weeks before Yolanda and Nina sailed. For jolly old England. 
In one of Will's first letters to Yolanda at her new school, he took great pains to remind her she was not there because she was talented. (gasps) She was just lucky. Oh, my God. And it was on her to make the most of it. You weren't kidding about long-suffering. It starts early. Oh, it starts so early. Nina was living in London. Speaking of long-suffering women in his life, Nina was living in London so that she wouldn't be too far from her daughter, and Will was barely home anyway. And yes, there was carousing happening if... If you're wondering. On um, Will's part or Nina's part? On Will's part. Okay. Yeah. Apparently that was fairly, Par for the... fairly prolific. Sure. Yeah. And in the spring of 1916, the headmaster at Yolanda's school wrote to Nina with his very deep apologies because this is just an anti-feminist story. He said that he had not been able to light an intellectual fire in Yolanda's mind and he was not sure what would, but he did feel like it was probably time for the two of them to set sail back for America. Oh my God. Yeah. Yolanda was like, I've been working hard this term. Like, I don't know what is like, I'm a senior. I would like to finish high school now, please. And instead start my life of not suffering under two parents. (laughs) So, um, more fun. Will meets them at New York Harbor, takes them to the family home in Sea Isle City, New Jersey, and then left for his solo summer vacation in Maine. Oh God. (laughs) Welcome home. See you in October, bitches. Yeah. So she would eventually matriculate from Brooklyn Girls High School. Her father would have some notable opportunities to blow his stack as when the homecoming was made invitation only and only white students received (gasps) invitations. No. So now we're going to jump ahead to 1920. Yolanda is following in her father's footsteps as a student at Fisk University in Nashville. Okay. Where she's thriving to be... Quite honest. I mean, Good she, on her. She, Finally. Woo! Yeah. These yeah. are Yolanda's happy years. Yeah. yeah. Uh, while a student there, she met a dashing fellow student a couple of years younger than her, a man named Jimmy Lunsford. Oh, I've heard of him. Mm-hmm. You have. Unlike everyone else in this. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So Jimmy had been born in rural Mississippi, but as a baby, his family had relocated to Oklahoma City, then on to Denver. Jimmy fell in love with music and, you know... By the time he was a teenager, he was playing multiple instruments. He was just, music was his thing. Big, big talent. His career path would lead him to teaching for a while after graduation, but make no mistake, he would go on to have quite a successful career in music as the head of the Jimmy Lunsford Orchestra. Obviously, neither he nor Yolanda knew how that was going to turn out, you know, in 1922 or whatever at Fisk, but she was over the moon with her new bow. How'd dad feel? Ooh, her father was less taken with the idea of his daughter falling in with jazz musicians and considered the relationship entirely unsatisfactory. Of course he did. I think they kept dating for a while, but yeah, there was, he was not going to sign off on wedding bells. So it would have to end. Meanwhile, Yolanda thriving. She was head of her I don't think it was a sorority, but anyway, like she was just a very busy person. She was leading, she was organizing. She was, it turns out she had had an appendectomy the year before in 1922 and uh, ended up with an infection that no one knew about. Oh no. So in April, 1923, she collapses at school, (sighs) ends up hospitalized for weeks. There were surgery. Like it was. Oh, we're back to long suffering again. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And again, this makes me think that the speculation about her childhood health stuff being fakery is not accurate. Like she had, she was hospitalized a number of times in her adult life. Okay. Back in New York, after recuperating, 
and all of that, Yolanda was, of course, in this circle of Black artists and writers that her father, through the crisis, was a prominent booster for. I mean, this the Harlem Renaissance was starting. It was. It had to be an amazing time. Blossoming, yeah. No, it's it, it's an exciting time and, and to, to, to be, be twenty two or uh-huh. twenty three years. Oh my God! Right um, there. So among the milieu was a British transplant named Harold Jackman, whose mother had relocated his family to New York. He was an enthusiastic supporter of African American theater, and while his day job was teaching social studies in the New York public school system, he was also a model, which I think speaks to how absolutely handsome, handsome he, mm-hmm. he was and he was he became a genuine mover and shaker in the harlem renaissance notably he was also prominent in harlem's gay community and was well known at something called the hamilton lodge ball this was an annual masquerade party that drew thousands of men and women in drag i had no idea this existed in the 1920s and 30s and more to the point, it began in 1869, I'm really? sure, in a much more discreet way. But yeah, this thing goes back, yeah, anyway, big big gay happenings in New York City. In the 1920s. That's fascinating. Mm-hmm. So Harold's best friend from childhood was a poet named County Cullen. He was born May 30th. What a good day to be born. 1903. <laughs> and in the early 1920s, County was widely viewed as the next big thing that would storm the world of American letters and indelibly demonstrate the power of the black voice. At some point in those heady days of the summer of 1923, probably while vacationing on the Jersey Shore, Harold, who might have been County's boyfriend or at some point later might have been County's boyfriend, okay, introduced County and Yolanda and the two hit it off. Oh, okay. More importantly, if your papa will... You see this pairing, a poet whose stature grew by the month with newly published work in well-read national publications, and the daughter of world changer, Will. Willie gets an idea. He saw a future yeah. that he could get behind. Wow. How do the kids feel about that? Well, in 1927, with Will's strong approval, County proposed to Yolanda during the Christmas holidays, and the wedding of the century was on. The April 9th, 1928 nuptials were the social event of forever for Black society elites. It was just bigger than anything that had happened in ages. And keep in mind, Will is running a big magazine. Like, right, no, it's a big deal. He's a media personality on top of everything else he is. So Will, uh, being Will, he stage managed the entire thing. He worked with county to plan the wedding, Yolanda was what? not really involved in this process. The father of the bride is the wedding planner, too? More than that. I mean, the With wed- the groom? The, the wedding dictator and publicist. Oh, God. Because it was very important to Will that there be press attention to everything. So, like, County went and got the marriage license a few days ahead of the wedding, just, I guess, to make sure there would be no bureaucratic snafus. And this was written up nationwide, in the black press. Like, anyway, everything was a big deal. Dad was very pleased with himself. Some particulars from the ceremony itself held at the Salem Methodist Episcopal Church. Quote, Baskets of mixed flowers and cages of canary birds were hung on the balcony railing. Cages of canary birds? At the altar were tall green palms, ferns, calla and Easter lilies, roses and tulips. From the ceiling and directly over the altar was a white dove suspended from a cord. (gasps) Yolanda had, I don't know if it was a living or, I don't know. Okay. 
It's like a dove with a leash. No, I... I Yolanda had 16... Just like a one-leashed dove. Oh, my God. Yolanda had 16 bridesmaids, plus her maid of honor. Holy cats. County had nine attendants, including Langston Hughes, Arna Bontemps, and his best man, Harold Jackman. Wow. This is a big deal wedding. It's a big deal wedding. Yeah. This was in front of a packed house of 3,000 people. (gasps) Yeah, these are... This family, these are big deal people. There was a similarly sized... You would never finish writing your thank you notes for your wedding gifts with 3,000 people. Like, just the thought of that just daunted my heart. I'm sure dad did it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There was a similarly sized crowd outside just there to celebrate and take in the spectacle. Wow. Lived up to the hype. And even better, this was just part of a string of good news that was befalling the happy couple. A few weeks earlier, County had received an extremely prestigious Guggenheim Fellowship. So he would soon be sailing for a year in Paris with his best man. Excuse me? Wait. Yeah. Uh, Harold Jackman. His buddy, maybe lover, maybe best man, best friend. Yeah, they were He's not going to take his wife? She'd come along later. Oh. Harry, hop on board. Yeah. Yeah, County's father was going to go to, like... It was, it was going to be a, a... A boy's trip? A boy's trip for a year. And pay. No, okay. I mean, anyway, this did set tongues wagging. Like, social mores may have been what they were, but it sounds like... It Even was, this is weird. Yeah. And it sounds like it was fairly commonly understood that um, Harold was going to be a bachelor forever. Let's... <laughs> we can cut that. The newlyweds traveled domestically... Throughout May, this was their honeymoon, and in June, County left as scheduled. Wow. When Yolanda got to Paris later that summer, she did not adjust well to life there. Oh, no. And her marriage was not off to a smooth start either. Will, of course, was heavily involved with both of them through letters. Oh, goody. Through letters, right. Perfect. Helpful Will. Never meddling Will. Always there with a kind word. He counseled each of them on their marital obligations. In a September 1928 letter, Will reminded Yolanda that, quote, Life is and must be compromised. We cannot have everything that we want. And the sooner the young person realizes this, the happier and more well-balanced he becomes. The panacea is work. Oh. Will thought that Yolanda should take up drawing so that she could illustrate County's poems. <laughs> Dude! Dad was pretty clear with Yolanda about who was important in her marriage. This is a quote, a quotation from his letter. You should make it easy for County to write. Keep him regularly at it. You should not distract him or make him spend too much time catering to your entertainment. Sure. For once in your life and in your own thought, get out of the center of the picture. Stop thinking of yourself or being sorry for yourself or regarding the world as revolving around you and concentrate on the main job of County Cullen. <gasps> oh, daddy. Daddy, daddy, daddy. Meanwhile, in his letters to County, because they're, they're all... Yeah, what's the flip side mm-hmm. of this? What's he saying to County oh, Cullen? He, he's, he's telling him that Yolanda is spoiled and often <sighs> silly and asks him to uh, bear with her and try again, perhaps. Remember that this inexperienced girl, despite her years... She's too old, obviously, despite her years. She really doesn't know what she's doing. Both like, sides 
now. But wow. Let's be clear. The problem really was not Yolanda uh, in this marriage. Scholars debate. Do you think that maybe Harold, the gay lover of County I mean, Cullen, was the problem? Yeah. Scholars debate whether County Cullen was gay or bisexual. And it, it's kind of unimportant because whether he was having a, a romantic relationship with anyone else or not, it's very clear his heart was not in. To Yolanda? To no. Yolanda. I suspect that being the protege of Will was a big part of the package that appealed to this aspiring writer, right? So what happens? Will dispatches Nina to Paris to... Oh, <laughs> Let me send your mother to fix <laughs> shit. Things over. Oh, God. Difficulties continued. Helpfully, gossips in the black press back in America were increasingly speculating that the two... We're on the outs. I mean, oh, it just, it goody. all sucks. Yeah. In May 1929, Yolanda wrote to her father that County had finally told her that he was attracted to men. She wrote, quote, you seem to be smelling a rot, so I thought I better tell you frankly. Of course, if any of this had reached me before, I wouldn't have married him. Yolanda filed for divorce in Paris. She did not go into detail about the reasons for their irreconcilable differences, which was nice. That done, she returned to the States. Went back to her life teaching in Baltimore. So just a little fantastic wedding. Yeah. By the time she got done writing the thank you note, Basically. she had found out her husband was not that into her. Right. And divorced him. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she didn't stay single for long. Oh, good on her. But she's long suffering. Does it work out? Oh, no. <sighs> um, I don't think she consulted her dad about this one to her credit. <laughs> Would you? In 1931, she married a guy named Arnett Williams, with whom she had a baby in October 1932. And then, because long-suffering, her husband moved to Pennsylvania to pursue his football career. Oh, my God. Abandoning his wife <sighs> and daughter, their divorce became final in 1936. And that is the last. <sighs> okay, but that's not... But wait, there's more. Here's the kicker. This is a passage from W.E.B. Du Bois, a biography by David Levering Lewis. Quote, by all accounts, Jimmy Lunsford was Yolanda's enduring passion. Mm. The man about whom she would spend much of her life dreaming, wondering how different things could have been if they had married. <sighs> Ten years before this volume of biography was published, Yolanda's only daughter remembered being taken backstage at about age 11 to meet Lunsford at Baltimore's Royal Theater. Tears came down his face like he wouldn't believe, she recalled. No. And he said to my mother, looking at her little daughter, she should have been mine. <sighs> oh. Heartbreaking. More heartbreaks, though. County died in January 1946 at the age of just 42. Wow. He did remarry in, I think, 1940. Anyway, he, he did remarry. It's thought that he also had a male lover throughout the second marriage as well. Will, of course, ever helpful, wrote an obituary for the guy, his oh ex-son-in-law, which was striking for how it noted that County had never become the writer that his early work promised. <laughs> Just like, <laughs> cold man, cold. Sadly, Jimmy Lunsford died the following year. He was just 45 years old. Oh. But he had turned into a well-loved showman and band leader who had toured the world and recorded on Decca and Columbia Records. Like, he actually ended up being kind of the luminary. Yolanda's mother lived to be about 80, passing away in 1950, and I think she spent the last decade or so of her life living with Yolanda, helping raise 
her daughter, Du Bois Williams. Yes, Yolanda named her daughter as directly after her father as she could and kept the Du Bois name in the family, as it were. Fantastic. Yolanda died of a heart attack in 1961 and was laid to rest in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, beside her mother and her baby brother. And you're never going to believe this, but somehow Will, who attended her funeral, never got around to installing a headstone for his daughter. Oh, no. His wife has one, his son has one, but Yolanda doesn't? The long-suffering Yolanda Du Bois, who only really got her dad's attention that one time when he could put her into a show wedding, finally received her own grave marker in 2014, when one, one of her grandchildren... Will lived two more years after Yolanda's death, and he died at the ripe old age of 93 in 1963 in Ghana, where he had moved to work on an encyclopedia of the African diaspora. Fascinatingly, the guy who kept sending his family to Great Barrington, Massachusetts, including to be buried, is himself buried in Ghana. You're joking. absentee in death, too. Really? So anyway, complicated, important, powerful guy, but my dude, your meddling was terrible. So that is the long-suffering Yolanda Du Bois and her father, W.E.B. Du Bois. Maybe don't let your dad plan your love life. That is a good takeaway. He didn't even... Get her a headstone. Like, what are you doing? He didn't even find her a heterosexual person to marry. Uh, there are some real questions that were left on the table. A lot going on there. A lot going on there. Wow. Anyway, that I don't have trash cans. I, I wouldn't even know where to begin. Woo. So that's... 3,000 all suspended from the ceiling. <laughs> yeah. God bless. Like a a one-winged trash can. (laughs) That's a hell of a tale, Stacey. That's terrible. I've been thoroughly enjoying writing this one. I just, it's such a contrast. I don't think anyone tells the story of W.E.B. Du Bois through his family. (laughs) And maybe we should. Well done. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. We're going to come back for another garden variety, trashy divorce. Yes. After we hear from our sponsors this week, see you on the flip. Hey, Trash Pandas, when you need a brain break from your day, let me recommend the game June's Journey for Android and iPhone. It's a hidden object mystery game where you are solving a murder, uncovering family secrets, and, I don't know, exposing official corruption? All in an extremely stylish 1920s setting. Every scene takes you deeper into the mystery and introduces you to an expansive cast of characters as June Parker explores the questions surrounding her sister's apparent murder-suicide at the family's beachfront estate. Add your own elements to the island, from lush gardens to gorgeous new buildings. This story has so many twists and turns. Right now, we are on a global journey attempting to rescue June's niece, Virginia. It's a great combo of gameplay. It's a memory puzzle, a design project an intriguing storyline with genuinely fabulous art. When you want to let your mind wander, relax into this glorious 1920s murder mystery and get lost in the fun. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Sibling fights are unavoidable, but what if every fight you had was under a microscope on a global scale? That's the reality for brothers Prince William and Prince Harry. They were each other's closest friends and allies since the death of their mother, 
but that all began to crack as they married and took wildly different approaches to their royal duties. Wondery's podcast, Dis and Tell, is hosted by comedians Sydney Battle and Matt Bellisai. Each episode unpacks one of pop culture's most iconic celebrity feuds, and they recently took a deeper look into the real reason William versus Harry started. It's actually much bigger than these two brothers, stretching back into the history of the British monarchy. Did their feud start with the royal family's mistreatment of Meghan Markle, or was it something that started much earlier? Follow Dis and Tell on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's be honest. Whether you're back in the office or still in your sweatpants working from home, life's day-to-day responsibilities lack the fun we all want and deserve. If you're looking for a sign to use some of that hard-earned PTO and have some much-needed fun, look no further. Funjet Vacations is a one-stop shop for all your vacation needs, and as leaders in the industry, Funjet Vacations gives you a fast, easy, and fun way to build and book your next vacation with exclusive package deals to all-inclusive resorts in Mexico, Central America, and the Caribbean. For a limited time, our listeners can use promo code FUNJET75, FUNJET75, for $75 off your next FUNJET vacation at Ryu Hotels and Resorts. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly resort or an adults-only getaway, there's a Ryu Hotel and Resort for you. To get started, just go to funjet.com or contact your travel advisor and you'll be out of office in no time. Offer is only valid at funjet.com when booked by October 15th for travel through December 2021. Restrictions apply. While it is hard to follow National Cat Month, October is bringing it strong with National Women's Small Business Month. The Women's Business Ownership Act, signed into law in October of 1988, finally ended the requirement some states still had for a man to co-sign on a woman's business loan. The four pillars of the law were to address the need for technical training to maximize growth potential of women-owned business, inequality of access to commercial credit, virtual exclusion of women-owned business from government procurement activities, and the inadequacy of information and data relative to women-owned business. 30 years later, the annual business survey reports that there are more than 1.1 million small businesses owned by women. This number is growing every year. More than half of these businesses have one to four employees. That's right, ladies. Making the most of the gig economy, we are talking about you too. From your Trashy Divorces family and our friends at the Oak Tree Group, thank you for supporting women-owned businesses. To all the women also running a business, big shout out to you. For your free one-hour financial consultation, contact the Oak Tree Group at www.theoaktreegroup.net or call them at 770-319-1700. Okay, so we're going to fast forward to a more contemporary situation, which ironically involves people who love period pieces. It's true. Friends, Trash Panda Nation, you have waited. Today I have the often requested story Mm -hmm. of the trashy divorce of the dame and the sir, Mm. Emma Thompson, Mm. Kenneth Branagh. Oh my. This is requested a lot. Can't wait to hear it. It is. I mean, it's... (sighs) Really very garden variety of a uh, trashy divorce, but there are some really quite delightful bits. So oh, good. So let's, let's get into it. <laughs> Emma Thompson, she's an Aries gal. 
She was born April 15, 1959 in London. Emma has a Scottish mother whose name is Philida Law. She's an actress. Emma has an English father. His name is Eric Thompson, and he is probably best known for writing and narrating this uh, television series for kids called The Magic Roundabout. Emma also has a younger sister, Sophie. She grows up in West Hampstead, attends Camden School for Girls. There are quite a lot of top-notch alumni that have graduated from the Camden School for Girls, but Emma will spend her time in between England and Scotland. Mom's family, dad's family, it's all great. She's talented. She gets A-levels as a kid. Like, she's very smart, really into English, into the social sciences. I found this was really fun. As a teenager, Emma goes to visit her dad in the U.S. He takes a stage directing job in L.A. in the 70s. And I just found this was so (laughs) such a little tidbit. Emma says she describes the city of Los Angeles as the strangest, most alien place I'd ever been to. My sister and I went down to the supermarket one time and came back with sliced bacon (laughs) and ice cream and makeup. I couldn't believe you could get them all in the same place. (laughs) She tells this to Robbie Coltrane, who was Emma and Robbie. We're going to talk about Alan Rickman, too, in this story. Oh, good. Kenneth Branagh, Helena Bonham Carter. There are only 20 actors in Britain, and we're going to talk about the majority of them Mm -hmm. today. That's great. Emma is awarded a scholarship, and she will begin at Newnham College in Cambridge in 1977 and watch her go. Emma's world is rocked when she reads the 1979 book called The Mad Woman in the Attic. This is written by Sandra Gilbert and Susan Gubar. And this book really, it's a feminist tour de force. It looks at Victorian literature from a feminist perspective. Mm-hmm. Rocks Emma's world. She gets into punk rock, dyes her hair red, Drives a motorbike. Nothing makes me happier than what you've just said. (laughs) Emma Thompson wants to grow up to be Lily Tomlin. (laughs) Really? Don't. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Red hair, motorbike, into the feminist theory, wants to grow up to be Lily Tomlin. And I say to that, don't we all? That's the dream. Mm -hmm. Don't we all? Emma's good at comedy, though. I mean, Emma's good at everything, but at Cambridge, Emma Thompson is invited to be the very first female member of Footlights, which is the sketch comedy troupe at the school. It's a big deal. And here's Emma, first female member with a bunch of other kids like Stephen Fry, who will say they all called her Emma Talented. That was her nickname was Emma Talented. Wow. Stephen Fry says there was no doubt she was going the distance. Oh, another one of those kids, Hugh Laurie, Hmm. is in Footlights, and Emma dates Hugh Laurie for a hot minute, too. Hmm. Emma's doing fine in school, graduates, but 82, in 1982, at the age of 52, her beloved father passes away. Wow. Which sort of crushes the family with the patriarch gone. But Emma Talented, Will Forge On, 1982 is also the year of her first professional role after her brilliant success at uni, right? So she's doing a lot of working, doing a lot of collaboration, making it done, going the distance. This is going to bring our sweet Emma steadily working up to 1987, where, whoa, she's got two roles, both for miniseries 
on television. The first is called Tutti Fruity, and she stars with Robbie Coltrane. Hmm. Who, come on, mm-hmm. Robbie Coltrane. It's just amazeballs. Yeah. Next up is another miniseries called Fortunes of War. It is a World War II drama. Emma, I'm just going to let you stay right here. Have a cuppa. Learn your lines. Two scripts. It's a lot. We're coming back around for you in just a moment, Petal. I feel like maybe there's a co-star situation that's about to happen. Just hang out on the depot, Petal. Yeah. We got you. It is a brisk Saturday in Belfast, December 10th, 1960, when Kenneth Charles Branagh is born. Sagittarius man. Did you check the weather? Yeah. (laughs) Okay. I did, and the date of the week. Okay. Top-notch researcher right here, babe. Gotcha. Okay. Kenneth's parents are solid working-class Protestants in Belfast. Dad is a plumber and a joiner. They live in Tigers Bay. But when young Ken is about nine, about 1969, it is the year of the Troubles, capital T, in Northern Ireland. It is not the only year of the Troubles, capital T. That's going to go on for about 30 years But Ken's parents, in the first year it happens, they're going to get out pretty early as the conflict is beginning in the late 1960s. Ken and family move on over to Reading, Berkshire, and it is school plays for Ken. That's way more fun than class acting. (laughs) And I mean, he's a pretty good student, but it's acting really Mm -hmm. in the theater and that... He gets the bug. Yeah. Oh, God. So much of the bug. The bug bites him. And... No one is going to deny Rada when the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts oh, comes yeah. calling, right? This is where Kenneth will begin his actor training. He is so good at Rada that Ken is asked to perform a soliloquy from Hamlet for no less esteemed a patron as Queen Elizabeth II oh my God. during one of her visits to Rada. Wow. Heady stuff. He's good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But by 1982, Ken is working too. He's trooping. He's touring. He's a working actor winning awards. He's going to make his way onto the scene in this whole swath of British actors about to take the world by storm in the early 1990s. But alas, by 1987, Ken is co-founding the Renaissance Theater Company. It's a big year. Also, he's got another little thing to do. Because Kenny has landed himself in a role in a television miniseries called Fortunes of War. Wow. And so it begins. Kenneth and Emma meet on the set. But that does seem a little far-fetched. Like, everybody in this story knows everybody else. Right. So I have a feeling they were in each other's sights before their actual introductions. Kenneth has worked with her sister Sophie in the past. Like, they're all... Yeah. It's It's a scene. Yeah, it's a, I think it's probably a fairly tight-knit scene, too. But wowza. Aries girl, Sagittarius man meet. Lots of fire in that relationship. So, so much fire. So it's love. The two date for like two years. Ken and M is how they're known mm-hmm. in the press. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they were darlings. I'm sure, yeah. Thousand percent Ken and M. Everybody's rooting for Ken and M. We rooted for them August 20th, 1989. When the two were wed in a lavish ceremony and everyone rejoices. Woo! Including Shakespeare coming back from his grave to rejoice too. <laughs> because these two are talented, right? They are making things solo and together. Mm-hmm. They're about to do much ado about nothing together. 
Yeah, Willie Shakes. Woo! It was a great run. Powerhouses, mm-hmm. the two of them. Everything's going swimmingly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what happened? They're on cloud nine, mm-hmm. taking the cinematic world and the stage, too, by storm. But that whole cinematic world, because sometimes it's great when we work together, and sometimes that's not always the case. So by 1994, old Ken making a new movie, directing and starring in a new movie. Old topic, though, of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Mm. And co-starring in that film is a young English last named Helena Bottom Carter. <clears throat> I want to still love her after this story. Oh, everybody, I... everybody loves everybody. Okay, good. It's fine. Excellent. Yeah, relax. Excellent. Everybody loves every. I mean, they don't, but then they do. Okay. <laughs> now, the 1994 intro on the set at Frankenstein is not the first time that Ken and Helena have met. Okay. They first meet back in 1988 at a poetry reading happening while floating down the Thames. Sounds pretty posh. Huh? It, it does. Sounds nice, actually. But Bonham Carter sure knows Emma Thompson because in 1993, they have starred as sisters in Howard's End together. Oh, okay. So 20 right. British actors. Yeah. Like, okay. But this is when Kenneth will see Helena again. Helena insists that she and Kenneth didn't really speak until 1994. She will tell the LA Times in 94, we'd never sat down and had a proper conversation we figured out. I went up for the interview for Frankenstein and it was all very, oh, love your work. Yes, love yours. And that was it. Filming begins. And well, so do Helena and Kenneth. Mm. The rumors are swirling and Emma and Ken are blowing off the scrutiny. This right? is just five years into the marriage mm-hmm. too. All right. They're blowing it off because, I mean, the Ken and M, Trouble in Paradise, mm-hmm. you know, they're like, no, we just have conflicting work schedules. We're both busy on opposite sides of the, but dear listener, we all know how this trashy story goes. So, by 1995, the marriage between Ken and M, done. Six years over and out. Parting is such sweet sorrow. But we aren't quite parted with this episode quite yet. Because this Wednesday on Trashy Breakups, we're going to pull in Helena Bottom Carter and Kenneth Branagh, which you're covering, Mm -hmm. and then her Trashy Breakup from Tim Burton. So, we're going to leave that there. Okay. But I would be doing you a disservice if I didn't delve into sweet petal Emma, just a little bit more Emma talented, Mm -hmm. because this is a trashy divorce's triumph in so many ways. Okay, Emma in 1995 is devastated. Her world has crumbled. Yeah, I remember. I was was heartbroken that they broke up. I loved their movies. I, yeah. Crumbled so much, Emma is, that if we think about one of her pivotal... Uh, movie scenes from the 2003 film Love Actually with both sides now playing where she is starring alongside Alan Rickman, who she will star with again in the Harry Potter franchise, along with her ex-husband and Helena Bottom Carter too. Wow. Yeah. 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 Okay. Woo. Okay. So. Oh, wow. Right. Emma Thompson recalls this 1995 heartbreak to manifest in that scene. She will tell the Sunday Times about that scene in the film. 
I've had so much bloody practice at crying in a bedroom than having to go out and be cheerful, gathering up the pieces of my heart and putting them in a drawer. Wow. Mm-hmm. Now, Game of Thrones star Kit Harington mm-hmm. considers this is his favorite moment uh, in film. He's like, she goes to her room and cries and settles herself and comes back. And by the time she'd left the room and come back, everything in her life has changed, but nothing has at the same time. It's beautiful acting. She really is a very talented actor. Yeah, it surprises me how polarizing love actually is. I I will admit that I do not get through a holiday season without watching it at least once. And at usually least. Emma Thompson is the... Okay. But 1995, she's depressed. My heart is broken. You know, adulterous yeah. affair. She's, yeah. like, she's super upset. But wait, let me tell you the cooler thing that happens. 1995. Emma's going to meet a man named Greg Wise on the set of... 1995 Sense and Sensibility. Mm-hmm. This film, Emma also writes and will win a Best Screenplay Oscar for in 1996. So good on you, Emma mm-hmm. Talented. But here's how they get together. Okay, Greg Wise is seven years younger and he takes the role in Sense and Sensibility. But before he gets to the set and it begins filming, he goes for a visit to one of his friends. This is Emma Thompson telling this story. And Emma's like, yeah, he went to go visit his friends. And this friend was kind of a bit witchy and reveals to him a fortune saying that Greg will meet his future partner on this film. Hmm. Okay. So going back into your 1995, Sense and Sensibility also co-stars a fresh-faced Kate Winslet. So Greg is convinced that it is Kate Winslet that is going to be the object of fate's future yes, for him. His fated bride. Emma Thompson doesn't cross his radar because as far as Greg knows, Emma Thompson is married and she's a little older and certainly Kate Winslet is the girl for me. It's gotta be. Mm-hmm. Certainly this is the way that fate will play yeah. out my life. Yeah, yeah. So Greg asks Kate Winslet out. They head on down to Glastonbury for the music festival and Kate is not into it. She is bored. He is kind of acting like a loon, self-admittedly. And she's, Kate Winslet is having a terrible time. So Emma will continue. To, she tells this tale in Graham Norton saying, he thought this isn't going to work. Who can it be? Then things happen that probably shouldn't have happened. And it's been 25 years in May. <laughs> it's actually been 26 years for the two of them. Yeah. They date from 19... They celebrate their shag anniversaries. Oh, my God. Isn't that great? Because they... Apparently, it was one of those when you know, you know. Yeah. Like, we... I'm not saying that the opening night salvo of sex doesn't sometimes not work out for you. So, they get together in 95. They get married in 2003. They have two kids. Happy as larks, those two. <sighs> I love Emma Thompson. She's mm-hmm. just a lovely creature. Yes. He had a friend. She was a bit witchy. Okay. So they have been together 26 years. It is wonderful. Congratulations. A little bit of the fallout here. Emma Thompson, about the past, about her ex-husband and his trashy affair, says all is forgiven. Hmm. It's all blood under the bridge. You can't hold on to anything like that. It's pointless. I haven't got the energy for it. Helena and I made our peace years and years ago. Well, that's very healthy. And again, tight-knit community 
of especially once they're all like kind of elite like mm-hmm. hollywood caliber actors like i i guess that's just better to <laughs> move on now, emma calls helena a wonderful woman and can see in talking about how all of this goes down she's like i get why ken fell in love with her we're a lot alike emma thompson will tell the sunday times about how they are alike. Oh, we are being slightly mad and a bit fashion challenged. Perhaps that's why Ken loved us both. She's a wonderful woman, Hmm. Helena. I'm probably going to save trash cans for this, for when we come back on Wednesday for your trashy breakups episode. We'll do a trash can spectacular at the end for everyone. That sounds good. Yeah. Because you'll be adding the addendum to the story when we return Wednesday on trashy breakups. Yeah. All right. So is that... So is that the story of? That's the story. All right. Well, hey, good on Emma. That was very nice. I love the triumph at the end. Happily married 26 years. Oh, Greg Wise, just so you know, played Lord Mountbatten on The Crown. Mm, Okay. That's how you know him. It it is, yeah. Apparently the 21st British actor. (laughs) Well, they make more of them all the time. (laughs) That is the... Very easy. Like, that's the trashy divorce of Ken and M. I wish I could make it more salacious than that. It seems like everyone has skipped along, moved along, made their peace with sometimes it just doesn't work out. And then sometimes you find the one that does because your witchy friend says, definitely date Kate Winslet. Well, and <laughs> sometimes you're just going to all be in a Harry Potter movie together. <laughs> Every one of them. Every one of them. Uh, that right. is Trashy Divorces for the Week, friends. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in and listening. Don't forget, you can always get some free episodes over at bit.ly slash trash candy. And if you need more content than that, we are still running our All Tricks No Treats mm-hmm. month over on Patreon. You can join us over there for ad-free episodes, 800 pieces of content just depending on your level of support over at patreon.com slash trashy divorces you got it y'all thanks again for listening and we'll be back on wednesday we will Mm -hmm. with your trashy breakup stacy not my personal one but yes (laughs) let's hope not yes and until we meet again trash panda nation keep your hands clean friends oh keep those hearts trashy big love y'all have a tremendous week we'll see you wednesday bye bye And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacey and Alicia, with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's sydneyvsmith at carbonmade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram and definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at trashydivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at trashydivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at patreon.com slash trashydivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. 
I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there, and thanks again, everybody, for listening. Keep it trashy, y'all.